Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. <laughs> Welcome to the Parasite Podcast. Today we're sharing part two of Little Billy Gilly. If you haven't yet listened to part one, you might want to head on over and listen right now. Part one provides you with a history of each family member and the situations leading up to the murders. We'll wait right here for you. This episode will cover the night Billy murdered his mother, father, and 11-year-old sister. Part two also tells another important story. One of resilience, perseverance, and success. Just a heads up, this episode describes family betrayal, murder details, and takes you through the terror of the evening as lived through Billy's 15-year-old sister's eyes. On April 26, 1984, 15-year-old Jody got caught sloughing school with her stoner friend Kathy, and boy was her mom mad. Jody wasn't a stoner, but she was a bit of a rebel. She loved the current punk fashions, and she was in many ways a mediocre student, but still a good girl, as evidenced by her taking an unexcused day off from school on a whim, but not doing anything to get into trouble. What did they do? Oh, they hung out at the local video arcade, they went to a boy's house for a while, and then they bought loaded potatoes for lunch and walked home. It actually sounds kind of fun. I love loaded potatoes. I do too. She just sounds like a normal, typical teenage girl. She was caught because the school had called and reported her absence. She and her mother argued in the front yard as she arrived home, and a disgruntled Jody whispered and complained to Billy as they all headed toward the house from the yard. 18-year-old Billy tried to console her, whispering that he would like to bash in his mother's brains. What a sweet way to console your sister. I found that so disturbing, and that they talked like this to each other all the time, given that she is saying he's also molesting her, I think is a super strange relationship. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're afraid of him, what are you going to do when he talks like that? But it, I don't know. It's very strange. But 18-year-old Billy was overly solicitous of his sister with all of the oh you okays and I will take care of you's when really he was helping himself not her yeah kind of creepy yes later that afternoon Jody smarted off to her mother and her mother slapped her Jody admits she was often sassy and very disrespectful and that her mom would slap her across the face and send her to her room as punishment just like she did this time Mm-hmm. Billy headed up to her room to see if she was really okay. And again, she angrily complained about her parents to Billy, and again, Billy joined in her complaining, both of them saying they wished their parents were dead. It's pretty awful. Well, and it's one of the precursors that we have seen time and time again. Kids who talk about it to either their parents or to other people are more likely to kill their parents. It's just like if someone strangles you, you'd better take that as a red flag that he will kill you yeah if he's talking about it to his friends talking about it to his family telling you he's going to kill you take note of that 
Yeah, it's pretty scary. He grumbled that he was still mad about that time when their dad had spanked him with a garden hose. Now remember, this was at least three years after that had happened. He said he still wanted revenge for that. After a bunch of ranting and raving, Billy expressed his wish to get rid of their parents. They apparently did this a lot, talking about killing their parents when they were mad about being controlled by rules. And Jody would say that she wanted to construct a small bomb and blow them up. And Billy would say that he wanted to bash their heads in, rent a boat, and tie rocks to their feet and throw them in the river. That sounds a lot more like a plan. Yes, it is oddly specific and very disturbing. It kind of sounds like he thinks he's a mobster still. I know, he does. But Jody says this was never serious. It was just a couple of pissed off kids blowing off steam. But there was more at play here. It seems that Billy really loved his sister, and I mean really loved his sister. In a gross way. Yeah. He seemed to think that getting rid of his parents would clear the way for him to have that desired relationship with her. But Jody really wasn't aware of this. She only knew that he would sneak into her room at night to molest her. He did seem to script things in his head that were improperly scripted. Like, Jody and I are going to be running off together. Despite knowing that she didn't like it when he would come in and do things to her and had tried to get help to stop him, he seems to think it's romantic. Exactly. And you see this more and more as you go through the trial and you hear the things that he says. After dinner, Jody saw Billy out back batting around a cardboard box. Odd, she thought, but she shrugged it off and went to get ready to go to her little sister Becky's play at the elementary school. Becky was the star of the show that night, and she wowed the audience with an Al Yankovich rendition of the Michael Jackson song Beat It, but it was called Eat It. The family spent the evening together watching the play, and it turned out to be a pretty nice night. Everyone came home relatively happy and relaxed, and Jody went up to bed as the family settled into a television show. At a little after one o'clock in the morning, Jody woke with a start when her bedroom light flipped on. See, her bedroom was this cozy little room that was tucked up away in the attic, but the light switch to her room was located downstairs. She heard someone climbing the stairs to the attic, and suddenly Billy appeared in her doorway and pushed a drowsy, unhappy 11-year-old Becky into her bedroom. He sternly instructed Becky to stay with Jody, and he turned on his hill and left. Exhausted, Jody just wanted to sleep, but was fine with having Becky in her room. She didn't know what Billy was up to, and she really didn't care. As she tried to drop back off to sleep, Becky said, What did you want? And Jody replied, I don't want anything. I was asleep. Becky was mad. She'd been peacefully sleeping in her mother's bed when Billy had shaken her awake, telling her Jody needed her for something. I'm going down to Mom. I'm not staying here, Becky retorted. Jody was tired, and she didn't want to deal with whatever this was, so she rolled over and went back to sleep, and Becky headed downstairs. You said in Mom's room, where was Dad? Remember, Dad was sleeping on the couch he had been for six months because he had propositioned Jody. Oh. Well, I'm glad he's still on the couch. Well, he's dead on the couch now. (laughs) (laughs) That 
that was unnecessarily dark. <laughs> anyway, Billy was in front of her mom's door, and he looked a mess. He refused to let Becky by, so she rushed him, and he hit her with his bat twice. Upstairs, Jody awoke with a start as she heard her little sister's screams of terror. She felt sick to her stomach as she next heard what she described as pounding sounds. She suspected at that moment that her parents were dead and that Billy was hitting Becky with his baseball bat. Oh. Soon after, he returned to Jody's bedroom, still in only his boxers and covered in her family's blood. He exuberantly declared, we're free now. But he started with, I'm sorry, I had to kill Becky too. Jody was horrified at what her brother had just done. She was frozen in place as she stared at him. He was breathing heavily, his eyes aglow, and he was covered from head to toe in the blood of their mother, father, and sister. He was telling her he felt like a character out of Friday the 13th, with pride and wonder in his voice. He also admitted it was much messier than he'd expected, and he wondered out loud if she thought he was crazy. She's probably too scared to say, um, yes, yes I do. She was. She said she knew there were two escapes from her room. One was down the stairs, which she couldn't take because he was in the doorway, and the other was out the window, but the tree was too small to escape onto. So she considered that before. Yeah. But she was stunned, and she tried to keep him calm, and she wondered if she were next. She probably couldn't figure out why he wasn't killing her, too, if he'd killed the rest of the family. She thought she was next. She was pretty sure he was going to kill her, and she kept trying to think of ways to keep him from killing her. And at every step, she thought, oh, now he's going to kill me. Now he's going to kill me. And she was really surprised when he didn't. That's interesting. It makes me think of the responses to a potentially lethal threat, the fight, flight, freeze. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like she took the fourth option, which is fawn. Well, first she froze. That's true. I think when she was up there in her bedroom and thinking about how she could escape, she kind of thought about flight, Mm -hmm. never thought about fight, and she did freeze when he was walking up those stairs. I can't imagine how she was feeling. Well, she just heard the sickening noise of her entire family being beaten with a bat. Right. And now she sees this mostly naked molester of a brother coming up the stairs. Nothing mm-hmm. good is coming of this. I think you're right. I think she did start fawning because she said that she kept trying to think of things that would soothe him, that she could say, and keep him from killing her. Yeah. So after cleaning himself up, Billy went downstairs again and swiped money from his parents' wallets. And he returned, giving Jody a $100 bill to keep for herself. While he was downstairs, Jody had pulled on a pair of pants. She'd worn a sweatshirt to bed as pajamas. In the article Night and Day, Jody said she was appalled by what her brother had done, and she was terrified that he might do the same to her, just like you were saying. At his second trial, a few decades later, Jody testified about Billy molesting her through the years, and it's fairly clear that Billy saw her as his erotic love interest. He wanted to ride off into the sunset, marry her, and live happily ever after, and Becky would have been in the way. Ew! It makes sense that he decided to kill Becky, too, because... Becky would be able to tell people, uh, that's brother and sister. They can't be together. Right. And Billy did share his hopes and dreams with her that night. He had told her that he wanted to drive them far away and start a new life together using the money he'd taken from his parents after he'd murdered them. So I think at that point it was dawning on her that she was in real trouble. 
Yeah, that would be terrifying. I don't know how she got through this. She must have been in a daze. She must have. But she also had years, it sounds like, of trying to placate this fairly violent brother who had a sexual interest in her that her mother and father didn't protect her from. Yeah, that's really true. So now they ended up headed downstairs and toward the back door. Jody tried to ignore the carnage of Billy's betrayal of her family, and Billy was directing her toward the family car when Jody noticed her dad. He was on the couch, where he always was, making kind of a snoring sound, and she thought, oh, this must be a dream. But then she came to realize it was the sound of a death rattle. And then she heard a soft, almost imperceptible moan. It was Becky. Becky was alive. Billy, Jody started, but then she stopped herself. If Billy knew, he might find his bat and finish what he'd started. She shook her head, said a little private prayer for Becky, and followed Billy out the door. That's surprising presence of mind for someone who must be in a complete state of shock. I think she lived in enough chaos and felt threatened enough in her life that she was fairly well versed in how to behave in a situation like this, unfortunately. Yeah. But Billy was chatting about how they would always be together now. But first he needed to stop and get some cigarettes. But Jody wasn't really listening. She was scheming on how to get some help to Becky. So she suggested they go to Kathy's house and pick her up. Her friend Kathy that she'd slept with, she lived across the field from them. She suggested they pick her up because she was always down for an adventure with them. Okay. Billy agreed, saying again that he needed smokes at some point. Thinking she might find a moment to call 911, Jody insisted on going in alone to get Kathy. Kathy's family always left their side door open, so she knew how to sneak in. She went into Kathy's room. She didn't say anything about her sister. She just said, my brother and I have snuck out, and we think we want to go somewhere. Do you want to go? Kathy invited them to stay there and play cards, so Jody went downstairs to fetch Billy. So when she was alone with Kathy, why didn't she ask for the phone or say, hey, I really need you to call the police? Even though she was saying she was in shock, this girl had a good head on her shoulders. And she was worried about disclosing the murders to her friend, having her friend get panicked, having Billy listening for that, and having him kill her and her family. She was trying to protect them while also trying to get help. Oh, that's a lot for a little girl. Yeah, she was only 15. Mm -hmm. So like I said, she went downstairs to fetch Billy, and she found him crouched by the screen listening at the door. So she was right. He was listening and monitoring her. Yes. He was afraid that she would say something. So he probably did this a lot. He probably was fairly controlling generally. Mm Mm-hmm. I would say so. If she knew he was going to do that. Yes. And I think that they hung out together, at least the three of them, quite a bit because Kathy did not seem even surprised that he was there with her. Mm-hmm. So did they stay and play cards? They did. They went up to Kathy's room, and Billy asked Kathy for some marijuana. And Kathy said she didn't have any, so he smoked all of her cigarettes instead, while Jody sat quietly and shivered as they played a few hands of gin rummy and ate snacks. Kathy offered her a sweater, thinking she was cold, and Jody declined. At 2.47, Billy had smoked all of Kathy's cigarettes, Now, no one had a cigarette, and nobody wanted to go with him to get more. 
so he decided to head to 7-Eleven, saying he was going to stop in at home afterwards. This was the moment Jody had been waiting for. She suggested he come back and pick her and Kathy up for school the next morning. He gave her a look, saying that he understood that she was not going to go off with him, and he said he thought he'd go home. Oh. So the minute he left, she told Kathy what had happened at her house, and her friend noted the need for parental involvement, something these kids rarely felt a need for. This is when the police were called. By 3.15 a.m., the police were on the way to Jody's house. Well, to Jody's old house. There was really nothing there for her anymore. And Billy, did he really go home? He did, but first he went and got cigarettes. And then, feeling betrayed and rejected, he went home. He noticed that Becky was still alive and he considered injecting her with air or poison to finish her off because he had a hypodermic needle in his room. But he decided to just go upstairs and let nature take its course. He says he wandered around the house and I'm sure he smoked a cigarette or two and he looked at a magazine. And when the police showed up, he let them in. Billy was now in custody. He didn't have much fight in him after he went and murdered his whole family. Well, he realized that his dream of running off with Jody was no longer an issue. That is so sick. It's really sick and really wrong. But Becky did survive long enough to be discovered, thanks to her sister. And she was admitted to the intensive care unit at Providence Hospital. She was not expected to survive the next 24 hours and she did not. Her death at her brother's hands was brutal, prolonged, and painful. And Jody found herself alone. That's so sad. I kept holding on to hope that Becky was going to make it. Um, so what was Jody going to do now? Her whole family's gone. You're right, and the death of her family was a turning point for Jody. She didn't quite know how to move forward, and there was definitely no going back. Prior to this, she had been drifting along in life, not sure of where she was going and letting the moment define her. The drifting did not bode her well. At the time of her parents' death, Jody was not succeeding at life. She delighted in reading, always had her head in a book, and books taught her about the world but never prepared her for what was to come. Nothing could have prepared her for this. A neighboring family, Kathy's family, took her in for the time being. Jody spent the next few weeks working with friends and family to get her mom, dad, and Becky buried in a cemetery outside of Medford. She spent the next few years working with investigators and lawyers to get Billy convicted and securely behind bars. But she spent the next few days trying to have a hand in her own fate. She'd heard about legal aid, so she headed over to the local legal aid firm for help. She wanted her neighbors to adopt her as soon as possible. She didn't have an appointment, and Legal Aid wasn't sure what to do with her, so they treated her like a walk-in appointment, and they had her talk to the next available attorney. Lucky for her, that attorney was Thad Geyer. She told him her neighbors wanted to adopt her. He visited with all three of them for a while, and then he invited the neighbors to leave so he could visit with Jody. He advised her that she needed to slow it down a little. He recommended he set up a guardianship for her and, after considering what he'd said, she agreed. 
Two days after her parents' death was not the best time to be adopted by another family. He was right. That's very smart. Adoption is very final. Yes, it is. And I think that he was very wise in how he counseled her. A lot of people did not like this attorney because he was very straightforward. And she took to him very quickly because he was very straightforward. She liked that she wasn't being treated like a child, that she wasn't being sheltered from things that she had to make decisions about. Mm -hmm. And she saw that in him early on, like in that first visit. Yeah, she'd had some very adult situations already, and to be treated like a child would be very frustrating when she's got really important things to navigate. Yes, and she asked him to attend the funerals with her, and he went. She was catching a lot of flack in the community because she hadn't been killed. Everyone was saying, oh, if she's not dead, she must have been in on it. And they were accusing her of things that she hadn't done. That's horrible. She'd been victimized at every turn. <laughs> mm-hmm. And for years. And the reason she wasn't killed was because her brother planned to keep victimizing her mm-hmm. for the rest of her life. Yes. But Attorney Geyer fended these people off and allowed her to grieve for her family in an appropriate way. Good for him. She seemed to appreciate that. Yeah. She seemed to appreciate that he didn't ask questions. He just took care of problems as they arose. And it was a good thing because her relationship with her neighbors didn't work out after a couple of months. Attorney Geyer offered to find her a new home situation, and he presented her with three excellent options. But Jody said, I don't want to live with any of them. I want to live with you. Wow. I know. She was, she, she was very clear on what she wanted once she figured out what was best for her. It's a complicated situation for an attorney to be in. I think so. Because, of course, he's human and cares about her, but she's also his client and a child. Right. And he did balk at the idea at first. He was going through some problems of his own, and he didn't see how this could be a viable solution. But Jody insisted. She'd come to trust and respect him as her attorney, and she liked that he treated her like an adult who would provide her with options and let her decide among the options. She liked that he saw promise in her. And she liked that he would talk to her about how to go about creating a good future for herself. It sounds like he, in being her attorney, also provided her with some of the first parental guidance maybe she'd ever had. Exactly. I think he was the father figure that she never had. Yeah. So he and his wife did take her in as her guardians, but his marriage did not survive the change. And... When he moved out of the family home, he took her with him. So he became her sole guardian. Wow, that has to be hard to have no children and suddenly be a single father. That would be quite a twist of fate, don't you think? Mm Mm-hmm. In August of 1984, four months after the deaths of her family members, Jody settled upon a new surname to help her move forward in her new life. At first, Jody didn't change her ways in school. She struggled with rejection from the community, she missed her mom and sister, and she had to wade through all of the rumors spreading through the school about her. She was still hanging out with dead-end kids and skipping classes, but something changed. She wanted that future that Attorney Geyer kept talking about, and she started to believe she could actually attain it with some hard work. Now that's good. She learned to ignore the rumors and the cruelties, and decided to let herself succeed. 
She was suddenly a child of privilege, and she could choose to use it to better her life if she was willing to put in the work. So, she set some goals and began to move toward them, and she has spent the rest of her life in constant forward motion, creating opportunities for her adulthood, allowing attorney Geyer to use his own capital to provide her with opportunities like any good parent would, and setting out to create another kind of girl. New name, new start, new life. Like most people who have had trauma foisted upon them, she acknowledges that a lot of her success is somewhat based on her inability to slow down. Slowing down can only bring back memories and pain. Maybe one day she will find a way to slow down and process the entire story of her childhood, but maybe not. For now, she'll run with her happy marriage and her successful career. She has no inclination toward going back to the days when she was Jody Gilly. She's pretty like her mom was, but unlike her mom, she has created the space in which to heal and to ensure she does not repeat the life her mother had created. I'm so glad that she found a way out. I am too. I think that she had the roughest beginning. She did, and after her family died, it could have gone a totally different way. Mm-hmm. That's very true. So, on to Billy. 24 years after he was sentenced to three consecutive terms of 30 years to life, one for each of the family members he'd killed, Billy was back in court. A federal appeal was allowing him a second bite at the apple because it was determined that he had inadequate representation at his initial sentencing. Okay, hold on just a minute. You said three consecutive terms of 30 years to life, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So they're not concurrent. So he'd have to serve 30, start over again, serve 30, start over again, serve 30. So he had a 90-year sentence there? At least. Okay. Yeah. So, of course, he didn't like that very much. So when he got an appeal, they didn't do a retrial because it was very clear that he'd committed the murders, but he did get a resentencing. Okay. Because the courts believed his attorney had not adequately presented details that could have lessened his prison sentences. So he was given a new sentencing phase, but not a new trial. Okay. So both the prosecution and the defense would be allowed to call witnesses for each side to give the defense an opportunity to present mitigating factors or even to argue that Billy had acted in self-defense. Wow. Yeah. We've talked about mitigating factors before. Basically, it's, yes, he did, he did do the crime, But here are some reasons why maybe he doesn't deserve the harshest punishment. And you can introduce evidence like child abuse, trying to protect someone else, basically anything that would make the judge think "Mm, he's not a huge danger to others if we release him someday. Okay, so this is why all of these years later he started talking about being egregiously abused. Most likely. Um, Given that it wasn't really discussed in the first trial... It seems likely that he went, oh, well, you know, I mean, my dad was super mean. He deserved it. So give me less of a sentence. Okay. Um, He couldn't really make that argument for Becky, but that's beside the point. Well, and that's one thing that's kind of interesting. Most of the kids who lose their case when they're claiming abuse will lose it because the jury will look around and say, "Um, we understand why you killed your abusive father or your abusive mother, but why the rest of the family? Yeah. So 
he kind of blew his own defense by killing Becky. Yeah, I think it's pretty much impossible to argue that you were killing someone to stop abuse if you also killed a child. And especially if you were stopping abuse that had stopped three years prior. Yeah. He just really didn't have very much of an argument, which I think he knew. Okay. Um, They weren't working for an acquittal because that was never going to happen. But he thought that maybe he could get those three 30 years to life sentences to run concurrently, which would mean he would already be eligible for parole because this didn't happen until he was 43. And of course, he wanted to be out of prison. Oh, okay. So he'd already served 30 years. And was Jody going along with this? Did she want him out of prison? Uh, no, of course not. I think Jody probably wanted him in prison probably before the murders, but certainly by the time he killed her family. he wanted She wanted him out of her life. Mm-hmm. And now, as an adult, if he's 43, she's 40, 41. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's been living the last 30 years secure and safe for the first time. Um, so she was terrified. She was probably horrified by the idea that he could get out and be running around in the world and come contact her and who knows what he would do. Mm -hmm. But Billy was still rewriting the history in his head. In his own mind, Jody was still his ally, I think, and had been his ally throughout the murders. Mm -hmm. According to the Statesman's Journal, when Billy took the stand, he didn't get up there and say, I am so sorry for murdering my whole family, including my baby sister. He didn't say, I'm so sorry for molesting my sister for years. He got up on the stand, and he didn't even talk about how he had become rehabilitated or how he was a changed man. Oh, and those are the things that you would expect to hear at a second trial for resentencing. Yeah, at a resentencing, that's exactly what you should be talking about, remorse and rehabilitation. But he instead chose to take this time on the stand to try and impose his story on the rest of the world. He instead took his time on the stand to absolve Jody from responsibility for the killings, which she clearly did not commit, and for which she was clearly not being held responsible. He was magnanimous rather than repentant, stating, in my view, she was not responsible. I was the older brother, I was not a good sibling to her, and I obviously failed her. So I think that was really an attempt to impose his story of what happened on the rest of the world, and especially on Jody. Yes, I know during the first trial, Billy was insistent that Jody knew what had happened. He tried to pretty much frame the entire situation as though she were a booty bumper who had pushed him into killing their parents. Yeah, he's... And that wasn't what happened. No, but he does. He acts like they were... Bonnie and Clyde, and I don't think he even sees how gross that is. It is gross. But at this sentencing hearing, both Billy and Jody talked about abuse that had happened in their family. According to the Albany Democrat Herald, Jody, apparently having to deal with some of the ghosts from her own childhood, would publicly claim parental abuse for the first time. According to the Albany Democrat Herald, Jody said that her parents would slap both her and Billy and that Billy got the brunt of the physical abuse, mostly based on his bad behaviors, like committing arson. But Jody also said that the abuse slowed down to a virtual standstill after Billy dropped out of school. So back when Billy was about 14 or 15. Mm -hmm. But Billy had other things to say. He claimed his father had knocked him unconscious at least 50 times. (laughs) I'm sorry, that's so ridiculous. 
It seems a little far-fetched, and Jody thought it was far-fetched too. She said that she never saw that level of abuse, and she'd never heard about it, even once. And remember, these two complained about their parents constantly, so she probably heard about every slap, every taunt. She did say that at one point, Billy claimed his dad had knocked him unconscious in the garage, like we talked about before. Oh, uh-huh. But she knew this was an elaboration or exaggeration because her mother always checked to make sure they were in their beds, and she would have noticed if Billy had not been in his bed that evening. Jody was fairly sure that he had just snuck out and was trying to come back after daybreak without getting in trouble. That makes more sense. It does, because I really do think he would have told her if his dad had knocked him out. So... At this hearing, the resentencing, Mm -hmm. Jody testified that she feared the day her brother was released from prison. She testified that he molested her as a child and that she believes he is and always was a sociopath. I would have to agree with her and the MMPI bore that out. Yeah, he had some serious personality issues. So did all of this work? What was his new sentence? According to the Mail Tribune, the judge cited a lifelong pattern of bad judgment and illegal acts as he handed down Billy's revised sentence. He did not see any remorse in any of Billy's statements or actions and firmly believed that Billy continued to pose a danger to himself and others. Billy's three life sentences were reinstated. However, his sentences for the murders of his parents would run concurrently and his murder of his 11-year-old sister, Becky, was ordered to run consecutively. This meant that Billy in total would have to spend 60 years in prison, but that's beginning from the first day he entered the prison gates. So that meant he had at least 36 more years of mandatory prison time to serve before he would be eligible to seek parole. At 43 years old, that's essentially the rest of his life. Right. So, as we can all imagine, Jody just breathed a huge sigh of relief, and I'm really happy because at least she is safe for now. Yay! I'm happy for her. I think she deserves some safety and security in her life. I do, too. That was a lot. (laughs) Yes, it was. So that's all for now. But can you spare a minute, listeners? We love providing you with episodes, and we hope you like what you're hearing. This research takes quite a bit of time and money to do right, and we're hoping you're willing to support us in continuing to make it all happen. Your monthly tax-deductible contribution of $5, $10, or $15 would be magical and more helpful than you could ever dream. Head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash parasitepodcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, Patreon, to set this up if you can. If you prefer to make a one-time donation, please visit parasite.org and make your donation there. Thank you in advance. We'd like to thank Jade Brown for our theme music and the Statesman Journal, The World, Albany Democrat Herald, Corvallis Gazette Times, Laura Wexler, Katherine Harrison, The Mail Tribune, and The Washington Post for a variety of information and the photos that we use for the show. If you like our show and want to reach out to us, you can find us at the Parasite Podcast on Facebook and Twitter, or you can write to us at parasitepodcast at parasite.org. You can see photos for this case at Parasite.org. Just click on the Parasite podcast once you get to the website. Bye for now. Bye. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down.